Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm here as host for New Books in History, a channel on the on the New Books Network. I'm here today with Associate Professor of German at the University of Notre Dame, uh, Tobes Bose. He recently published Thomas Mann's War, Literature, Politics, and the World Republic of Letters, again, published earlier this year, actually last year, by uh, Cornell University Press. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Professor Bose. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. So, first off, what prompted you to study Thomas Mann in the International Republic of Letters? Yeah, so my initial motivations in starting the project were actually quite different from what the book ultimately became. For one thing, um, it's a project that was much more abstract and academic in nature than what I ultimately produced. Uh, my my original training is in comparative literature, and I have a special interest in the field of world literature, which is the question of how literary texts circulate beyond their culture of origin. And when I first conceptualized the book maybe seven or eight years ago, um, I focused a lot of energy on uh, a, a hypothesis that was then very common in world literary circles, namely that authors, if they want to succeed in the global arena, have to rid their works of any overtly national characteristics. That is, they have to write in a style that is easily translatable. They have to avoid cultural illusions that an international audience won't be able to understand, and so on and so on. Now, I'd long been a fan of Thomas Mann and was struck by how easily his example seemed to disprove uh, this hypothesis. I mean, Mann was an intensely German author, not just in the way in which he thought of himself, but also in the way that he wrote. Um, he cultivated a very Germanic style, very long, convoluted sentences. Uh, he was extremely deeply immersed in, in the German cultural tradition. And yet I knew that Mann was a celebrity in America during the 1930s and 40s, and that he was a celebrity not despite of, but rather because of this very intensely uh, Germanic character. So maybe a little bit of biographical background here is in order. Uh, Thomas Mann had won the Nobel Prize uh, for Literature in 1929. And he was an early and outspoken opponent of the Nazis. So when the Nazis came to power in 1933, he happened to be outside of the country and it was clear from the very first moment that he wouldn't be able to go back. And he spent the first few years of his exile life in Switzerland, uh, but then eventually uh, decided to come to the United States in 1938, where he stayed until 1952. And during that period, he not only continued to write in German, but works that were immediately translated and published in America but he also gave public lectures and, and did various other things. And he was immensely possible, uh, immensely popular. And so I decided I wanted to write a book to, uh, that would explore how that happened and that would investigate how Mann himself thought of his position within, within world literature or what I call in my book the World Republic of Letters. And in the past few years, a number of other critics, such as Gloria Fisk, Timothy Arby, or Alice Kaplan, have pursued similar questions. And so we now have a much better understanding how much um, how much of contemporary literature has what Gloria Fisk calls a tourism aspect. That is, we now, uh, I think, more deeply understand that people pick up books in part 
because they want to learn about faraway places. So cultural identification can be a great marketing tool as long as it's not too deep, not, not too complex. And so as I began working on Thomas Mann, I, of course, became immediately aware that his popularity, his position within the World Republic of Letters depended to a great deal on his political activism. Um, but at first, that was very much a secondary uh, part of the project. And then in roughly 2015, 2016, shortly after I had concluded my original survey of primary and secondary sources and, and done my first archival work, the world just sort of changed. And first, there was the ascendancy of right-wing populism in Eastern Europe, and then Brexit and the, the election of Donald Trump here in the United States. And so suddenly, this whole question of uh, Mann's struggles on behalf of liberal democracy is positioning uh, against fascism, which had seemed fairly remote to me when I began the project, those seemed a lot more pertinent. And I also came to see a link between Thomas Mann and more contemporary authors like Salman Rushdie, Orhan Pamuk, uh, Elif Shafak, authors who are similarly acclaimed, not just for their literary work, but also for their outspoken criticism of their native governments. And so the book changed quite a bit as a result of that. I foregrounded the political elements more, um, even though the literary questions are still central uh, to the work. Um, and I made a more conscious attempt to write for a non-specialist audience, one that, that, that knows very little about Thomas Mann and is maybe not trained in literary criticism. So can you touch a little bit on his uh, reflections of a non-political man and his pre-1937 conceptions of Jewish peoples? Yeah, so the, uh, the reflections of a non-political man were uh, Thomas Mann's great work that he published during the time of the First World War. Uh, and at the time, he was a very different writer from what he ultimately became. Um, he was, at that time, a much more conservative nationalist, uh, and he set out to write the reflections of a non-political man, basically to defend German culture against what he thought of as uh, the, the intrusions of Western civilizations by the Western, the Western powers, especially Britain, uh, France, um, but there are some barbs against America in there as well, um, actually. Uh, and he also uh, wanted to uh, actively differentiate a notion of German art uh, against, uh, specifically German literature, against uh, French and British literature, which he thought uh, had been had succumbed to the lure of politics, had had, had let itself be involved in imperialist projects, uh, and, and German art, by contrast, um, he thought was something. Uh, that's, that stood above the fray, so to speak, that was independent of all of those um, political concerns. And um, at the same time, since you asked about his conceptions of Jewish peoples, um, he, Thomas Mann, like many German intellectuals at the time, uh, was kind of a, a, a genteel anti-Semite, as we sometimes call now, uh, say nowadays. So uh, he uh, uh, had had certain troublesome opinions uh, that he, he mostly kept to himself, although there was also a brouhaha uh, about one of his early stories that he eventually had to pull because uh, uh, of anti-Semitic elements that were in there. So uh, all of this, in other words, uh, made him a very different kind of author from the kind of person that he became in the 1930s, Sometimes somebody who was not only much more philo-Semitic, but also uh, developed very different understandings of the role of, uh, of German culture in the world at large. And my book really begins in the 1920s as a way of, of, of setting up some background uh, for Thomas Mann's later ascendancy in the United States. So the 1920s were not only the decade in which he first became popular, 
uh, in America. He was first uh, sort of seriously translated after the end of the Second World War. But it was also the decade in which he began to shift uh, quite considerably um, in his political uh, opinions towards the world. And he came to see uh, at that point in his life um, that that German culture had a uh, had a role to play within a Europe at large. He was at that point still far removed from thinking about what he later would call uh, Weltdeutschtum or, or Germanness in the world, cosmopolitan Germanness. Uh, he was at that point still thinking on a, on a merely European scale. But after the devastation of the First World War, Mann realized, and he was far from the only writer of his generation, and I think this is a story that is, has oftentimes been forgotten nowadays, um, he realized that uh, intellectuals and artists would need to reach out to one another, would, would need to reach out across linguistic and national um, barriers. The international pen centers that are still with us today are one um, institutional outgrowth of that. And Mann was very involved in that. Uh, and that is sort of the first step that he took toward away from his earlier national positions, nationalist positions, and towards something more international and cosmopolitan. Let's talk a little bit more about that change. Why did Mann's habitus of modern representative authorship diverge from past authors and his contemporaries? Any response, if you can uh, address that attempt to connect him, connect him to middle-brow audiences in the 30s? Sure. Um, so what I would say separates Thomas Mann from virtually any other author is his fundamental ambiguity about being a writer. Um, he had an early uh, novella called Tonio Kerger in which he analyzes this in great deal. Uh, and it's, it's uh, basically the self-conception that, that Thomas Mann uh, always had was that of an artist who stands apart from the world and who looks at, quote-unquote, ordinary people with a certain amount of longing, even though he knows he can never really be um, a, a part of them. And that, that longing for normalcy, that, that kind of flirtation with ordinary life, I think is what, what separates Thomas Mann from most of the writers who were, were just a few years younger than him, who would, who would form the proud cohorts of the avant-garde uh, in the years following uh, the First World War. And yet at the same time, Mann was also a student of Friedrich Nietzsche, who had absorbed uh, Nietzsche's main insights about, about human language, which is that, uh, that language is never just innocently descriptive of external reality. Nietzsche realized that language is a means by which we construct uh, reality, and, and, and Mann's realization of this fact, or this is his uh, acceptance of that fact, uh, along with his reflections on the social implications of it, those are what make him a quintessentially modern author, one who belongs to the 20th century um, rather than the 19th. And this this kind of fundamental ambiguity, this this sort of being between things, not quite being a part uh, of the avant-garde, but not quite being a part of the 19th century either, and this flirtation with, with what he would have called ordinary life, um, those fundamentally shaped his habitus, that is, his, his public self-presentation uh, as a writer. So his fictions are always stylistically uncompromising. Uh, they're dedicated to a pursuit of truth that can be achieved by means of art alone. But he was also very level-headed about the fact that art, once it's released into the world, becomes a commodity like any other. In other words, something that needs to be packaged and promoted. So he understood that consumers who buy a book uh, do not thereby acquire a piece of literature alone. They also invest in an image of the author who becomes uh, a part of that that commodity that, that people um, are purchasing. And that self-understanding is what made him, I think, particularly 
marketable in the United States. I mean, Thomas Mann did not take a super active interest in the way in which he was promoted and marketed in the United States, at least not as at first. But still, there were certain things about him that uh, that other people could easily latch onto uh, uh, and use to promote. And, and when I talk about other people, I'm thinking about his American publisher, Alfred A. Knopf, uh, and cultural critics of the time, like, like Henry Seidel Canby or John Erskine, who in the 1920s, which, like I said, is when, when Mann was first uh, sort of promoted in America, they began to market uh, European literature to their countrymen as a, as a means of intellectual self-improvement. And so they form what is what we now collectively call the, the middlebrow cultural formation in America. And that's, that's a term that I realize to many uh, contemporary uh, listeners will sound slightly derogatory, but I, I use it without any uh, sort of aspersion simply to, to refer to the attempt to advocate for intellectually serious literature by, by stressing its, its ostensibly pragmatic uh, uh, benefits. And Thomas Mann could very easily be appropriated uh, for these, these middlebrow purposes because he rejected avant-garde posturing. He, he stressed his bourgeois origins, which made him very acceptable to the American middle classes. Um, and he was also uh, could very easily be put into the position of somebody who was capable of explaining the European mindset, of explaining why the First World War had happened, what would have to come after the First World War. His activities within the European Republic of Letters uh, made him um, very suitable for that. So The Magic Mountain, for instance, which was published in English translation in 1927, um, was the most important work in that regard. And people like Knopf promoted it. Uh, precisely by saying, you know, pick up this book and read it and you will understand why it was that, that Europe um, uh, engulfed, engulfed itself in the flames of war. And after Hitler came to power, that kind of intellectual prestige that he had could easily be shifted from a more European arena, which is where he was situated in the 1920s, towards an image of Thomas Mann as an embodiment of a particularly German kind of culture, a, a spokesperson for the German cultural tradition that had been had been perverted uh, uh, by Hitler. Already in 1934, there were intellectuals in America like Sherwood Anderson, Kenneth Burke, Langston Hughes, and other people who were actively calling on Thomas Mann and saying, you know, you are the person who needs to step up and needs to needs to confront Hitler in that in, in that fashion. You need to you need to show that German culture is not just Hitler. Uh, and Mann, it took him a while to actually do that, but but uh, once he did so in 1936 was very rapidly embraced uh, uh, in America and was even uh, stylized as what one newspaper called Hitler's most intimate enemy. So in the 19, his 1937 on the problem of anti-Semitism and his 1938 Joseph in Egypt, how did and why did Mon wrest coeval mythology from fascism and paradoxically situate it within the U.S. West contemporary events and Judeo-Christian traditions? Yeah, so uh, Mann's sustained attention to the problem of myth is probably uh, what I would think of his most important contribution to the struggle against fascism. And before I talk about that in detail, maybe maybe important to understand that his interest in myth originally had nothing whatsoever to do with politics, but it stems from a uh, from a profound shift uh, in his literary strategies that took place in, in at the midpoint of his life uh, in the 1920s. Um, so broadly speaking, the, the ideas for the stories that Mann wrote before that shift in the 1920s, during the first half of his, of his career, um, 
those ideas practically all came from personal experience. So Mann actually really did go on a vacation to Venice where he met a beautiful young boy and that, that became the colonel for death in Venice. He really had spent a few weeks in a tuberculosis sanatorium in the Swiss Alps and that became the colonel for the Magic Mountain. So autobiography always came first, even if it was then transformed into something much more general uh, uh, through the alchemy of his art. But starting in the in the 1920s, Mann turned to world literature as a source of inspiration for what he wrote. And practically everything that he produced after that, that point in time was a reworking of literary materials that had been invented by others, including very centrally mythic and mythological materials, such as the Old Testament in the, in the monumental Joseph novels, which occupied him basically from the late 1920s to the early 1940s but also other source, sources such as uh, Indian legends in a short story, The Transposed Heads, which also came out in the, in the early 1940s. And so just as this transformation was happening, just as Man was shifting towards rewritings of, of earlier stories, including stories from mythology, fascism came to power in Europe, first in, first in Italy and then in Germany. And analysts of fascism on the political left quickly came to realize that one of the reasons for fascism's success one of the reasons why it had outsmarted communism uh, in, in the war of popular opinion uh, had to do with the fact that it appealed not to reason, but rather to primordial feelings, to tribal sentiments, to class rather than uh, to class solidarity, to the maximum of an eye for an eye, rather than to enlightened judgment and so on and so on. And this realization was one of the cornerstones for the various popular front movements that sprung up around the world, including in America during the 1930s. And in which communists did uh, did common cause with socialists and left-leaning liberals to create what they thought of very consciously as a new mythology by which to oppose fascism on a, on a sub-rational level. So in the United States, uh, uh, this this cultural project uh, took the form of, uh, say, Aaron Copland's musical pieces like Fanfare for the Common Man or Carl Sandburg's four-volume Lincoln biography, uh, in which Lincoln was was stylized as this larger-than-life geographical figure, and and so on. And uh, Thomas Mann had had connections to various popular um, front projects. This is not something that that most people remember nowadays, although the extent to which he was consciously influenced by what they did uh, is is open to the debate. Um, But be that as it may, the idea that that democracy can only stand its ground against fascism if it takes down, if it puts down roots in myth, uh, that is very much central to uh, the first lecture that that uh, Mann gave in America after he came to the country in 1938, which was the coming victory of democracy, and he toured the country with that, and he basically argued um, that uh, democracy was as much a, a, a state of being, an emotion. Uh, than it was a a political system, um, and and that people needed to relate to it on a fundamental uh, level of feeling. But much earlier than that, already, um, he had discovered uh, uh, that his ongoing preoccupation with the biblical story of Joseph and his brothers, which again he had begun in the 1920s uh, at a much earlier time, uh, that that preoccupation with with biblical stories had actually handed him a potent tool in the analysis of the fascist mind. So, for instance, the savagery with which uh, Joseph's brothers um, treat him, in which they throw him down the well, that <clears throat> that made a great allegory for the cruelty with which Nazi brown shirts uh, were hounding down Jewish citizens, who who also sort of believed that they belonged to the tribe, that their services uh, to Germany uh, in the First World War had had rendered them above approach, had rendered them model German citizens. 
And so that was an important intellectual development uh, for Mann, who, as I already mentioned earlier, uh, up through the early 1930s, had participated in the casual and, and often not so casual anti-Semitism that, that blinded many German intellectuals um, of his generation. But, but now he sort of came to understand um, that the persecution of the Jews was an attack not on an external element, but rather also uh, on a fundamental part of, of German identity itself. And at the same time that, that all this was happening, you know, the status of Judaism um, in America was changing as well in response to the news of the European pogroms. For much of, of its history, America had thought of itself as, uh, as a Christian uh, nation. But now this, this, this new concept of America as a Judeo-Christian uh, nation that was at war with godless fascism. Uh, uh, acquired some uh, some currency. And so in, in the book, I, I relate this uh, somewhat amusing story uh, of Thomas Mann's American friend and patron, Agnes Meyer, who wrote him a letter about her reading experience of Mann's Joseph novel, Joseph in Egypt, um, during a vacation that she took on a, on a family cattle ranch in Wyoming. And uh, so she was settling down by some stream and reading this book. And in, in her mind, the biblical landscape kind of blended uh, with the landscape of the American West and, and in her mind sort of supported this notion uh, that there was this, this primordial war of good versus evil going on and that America would have to play an important role in that. During the 30s, again, why did man become associated with the New Deal and a German cultural tradition in Ivy League scholarly circles and then uh, uh, anti-Nazism in the public sphere? Yeah, so we're, I think we're talking about uh, several different things here. So first of all, um, uh, uh, Mann's association with the New Deal uh, deserves to be mentioned. Um, and and uh, when we talk about that, uh, we need to understand that uh, Mann was not a particularly practical thinker ever. Uh, he spoke with great eloquence and conviction on topics such as democracy, freedom uh, in the abstract. But he never really had a very firm understanding of the, the reality of day-to-day -day politics, and especially not of uh, American politics. He did, however, have an almost idolatrous devotion to Franklin D. Roosevelt and, and to his policies of the New Deal. Mostly, and this is where we tie back to the, the mythic elements that we discussed in your last question, mostly because he saw in FDR an almost sort of allegorical, um, uh, larger-than-life opponent to Hitler. Uh, Roosevelt's physical handicap combined with what Mann always thought of uh, as his moral rectitude, those seem to make him uh, the exact uh, antipode to, to Hitler's obsession with Aryan physical strength and with what, what Mann always called his, his uh, verhunste moral nature, that is, his, his stunted uh, undeveloped uh, uh, moral nature. And Mann had an, an admirer in Eleanor Roosevelt, and since the Roosevelts and the Manns uh, had friends in common, um, they were twice invited to the White House. Uh, they dined with the president. But uh, it would appear that FDR was considerably less interested in literature than his wife, uh, and that his famous visitor, unfortunately, never really left much of an impact on him. But that's not the only way in which uh, Mann related to, uh, to government circles. Um, there was also uh, his tenure at the Library of Congress. So for that, we need to turn to uh, one of his great American promoters, Archibald McLeish, who in 1939 uh, was a Pulitzer Prize winning poet. Uh, and in 1939, he was appointed the Librarian of Congress. 
Uh, and he entered that new position with uh, very grand plans to to transform the library into a weapon in what would later come to be known as Roosevelt's arsenal of democracy. And what this meant was that that McLeish created a fellowship program uh, through which he tried to attract leading scholars with practical expertise in areas useful to wartime America. Uh, and he brought them to Washington and he, he gave them the opportunity to shape the acquisitions policy of the library and create bibliographical aids so that the library could, could put itself uh, in, in government service during this time um, of crisis. But Mann was, uh, sorry, but McLeish uh, was, of course, uh, uh, also a poet, and he had very idealistic opinions about uh, the, the role that a poet uh, could play in a democracy. And that was part of what he did at the Library of Congress as well. He created a lecture series about literature and democracy. And as he was doing this, uh, the aforementioned Agnes E. Meyer, uh, the woman uh, whom we just met in Wyoming, who was the wife of the Washington Post owner, so a very, very powerful uh, uh, woman in Washington circles, um, and, and a great admirer, a great friend of Thomas Mann's. So Agnes E. Meyer came knocking on Archibald McLeish's door and approached him with the idea uh, that maybe Mann should be given a courtesy appointment as a consultant in German literature, which, you, which she would pay for. Uh, and uh, McLeish seized on this as an opportunity to involve Mann, who already had quite a reputation as a lecturer on behalf of democracy in more sort of populist venues, to bring him to Washington and have him lecture uh, in front of government circles as well. And so as part of Mann's contract, he was asked to come once a year and give a talk in Washington. For various reasons, he didn't come quite that often, more like every second year. Uh, but his talks were attended, uh, at, his talks at the Coolidge Auditorium in, at the Library of Congress uh, were attended by cabinet officials, Supreme Court justices, foreign ambassadors, and, and so on. Uh, and those provided him with a quite powerful venue to um, put some of his ideas uh, uh, before uh, people who were involved in the U.S. government uh, at the time. And some of his strongest lectures uh, of the time period, including uh, his, his talk, Germany and the Germans, uh, of 1945, uh, which I think of as the best thing he ever wrote uh, in sort of the non-fictional arena, um, uh, resulted from that collaboration. Now, you mentioned Ivy League uh, uh, scholarly circles as well. So that was another important thing that happened during that time period, because this was a, a time period in which a lot of U.S. institutions uh, were changing as a result of what was going on in the world. Um, and Princeton University was one of them. It had created back in 1936 uh, an interdisciplinary so-called special program in the humanities, uh, which was created largely out of um, anxiety of humanists at the time that the social sciences were gaining an ascendancy in an age of mass politics. Social scientists uh, were acquiring a lot of social prestige uh, in U.S. culture, and, and the humanists kind of wanted, wanted to get in on that game. And so they created this this interdisciplinary uh, program at Princeton as a way of talking to one another, as a way of emerging from their from their specialist uh, disciplines. And when he relocated to America, Mann was given a temporary position as a visiting lecturer in this special program. Um, he he taught there for, or he lectured there. It's, it's an exaggeration to say that he taught, but he occasionally lectured um, over the span of three semesters. He lived at, at Princeton for for three years in total. Um, and that was important because it, it gave him financial and residential stability. It gave him a certain amount of social prestige. And mo most importantly, it, it provided him uh, with the time that he needed uh, in, in which to work. 
though in terms of, of actual anti-fascist activities that probably proved to be much less transformative than the stuff that he did in Washington, uh, largely because uh, the German department at Princeton didn't really know what to do with him. So he, he kind of um, uh, uh, stayed by himself for, for much of this of his time. And then finally, um, you mentioned his reputation as an, as an anti-Nazi in the, in the public sphere. So I already talked about very briefly about how this began very early back in, in 1934 when various American intellectuals published an open letter uh, in the New Republic uh, uh, urging Thomas Mann to speak out uh, against fascism. Um, and uh, over the, the, the later 1930s, because of op-eds that he wrote, essays that he published, but most importantly because of various lectures that he gave, um, he really transformed himself uh, into a very well-recognized figure, even with ordinary people. Somebody who was cheered when he uh, uh, when he appeared in newsreels and stuff like that. So let's zero in on the uh, 1939 uh, Lady in Weimar. Um, so in Lady in Weimar, how did uh, Mann critically reconstitute Goethe as a representative author? And, and if you can. Please address that uh, post-war investigation into his sources. Yeah, so uh, from the moment that I, I began this project, I knew, I knew that uh, Lotte and Weimar would, would uh, represent one of my biggest challenges. And in fact, I, that was the pages devoted to that work were some of the very first that I ever uh, wrote. And most listeners of this podcast will probably never even have heard of the text. And that, of course, is part of the challenge. So the basic story is this. Um, in the mid 1930s, before he even became, before he even came to America, shortly after he had finished the, the third volume of his four Joseph books that he was writing at the time, um, Mann decided to take a sort of break uh, by writing a short comic novel, and that novel is Lotte in Weimar, which was published uh, in the United States first in 1940 under the title The Beloved Returns, uh, but is now known as Lotte in Weimar, um, which is also the German title. And it's a novel that's that's loosely based on historical events. Uh, it tells the story of an old age reunion that actually took place uh, between uh, the famous author Goethe and his former love interest Charlotte Kestner, who is famous nowadays for having been the real life model for the character of Lotte in The Sorrows of Young Werther, which was the novel that had launched Goethe's career when he was still a very young man, so over 40 years earlier. Uh, and the, the the sort of comic novel about how these these people who had been lovers at a much earlier point of their life reconnect uh, in 1816. Um, it's one of Mann's greatest novels, in my opinion. It's unjustly forgotten, uh, but it also presents formidable challenges to anybody trying to write a book about uh, Thomas Mann as an anti-fascist intellectual during this time period. I mean, I've, I've just talked about uh, how in the Joseph novels, Mann had found a way to wrest myth and mythology away from fascism, uh, how he tried to repurpose it for democracy. I've also hinted uh, at the ways in which, which Joseph was kind of an ideal vehicle uh, through which Mann could connect to an American audience simply because American audiences could easily relate uh, to that, that biblical um, subtext. Uh, it was a familiar story. Um, but uh, and, and those Joseph novels actually sold very, very well uh, in the United States. And then so the, the, the weird question then is when he arrives in 1938, uh, he's well underway on writing this uh, this project, Lotte in Weimar, but he has by no means finished it. He's maybe halfway done with it. 
Um, and so why didn't you just set aside that manuscript and uh, uh, begin working on the next part of the Joseph novel? Because that is what Americans were waiting for. That's, that's what sold. Uh, and he must have known that his audience in exile would have very little patience for this the story about a very obscure element uh, or a very very obscure episode in Goethe's life. This is where the the fundamental Germanic nature of his writing that I talked about earlier comes through. Well, and one way to answer that question uh, is that that uh, it was actually an attempt for Mann to continue his engagement uh, with fascism on a mythic level by wresting a foundational uh, myth of German culture, Goethe himself, away from the Nazis. So Lotte and Weimar is very much a story that that uh, stresses uh, Goethe's fundamental cosmopolitanism, his distrust of romantic nationalism, um, and, and uh, uh, Mann actually puts some of the lines from his own lecture scripts into Goethe's mouth in that novel, and he also came up with new lines for him, uh, for instance, passages in which Goethe complains about the berserker excesses of his countrymen and, and, uh, uh, and their tendency to abandon themselves credulously to every fanatical scoundrel that comes along. So pretty clearly stuff that was, that was minted at, uh, uh, or that, that was, that was targeted at, um, contemporary events. But there's an alternate question, uh, answer to the question, uh, why did you write Lotte in Weimar? And that would have to uh, do with the form rather than the content of the novel. So in the in the central chapter of the work, which is the one that Mann wrote after his arrival in America, uh, Mann takes us inside the mind of Goethe, and he does so by means of an extended montage sequence. That is, he, he splices together literally thousands of quotations from Goethe's works and his letters, from observations by contemporaries, from posthumous biographies, and from critical works. And the result is so seamless that it seems like an organic reconstruction of the mind of a great thinker. I mean, as you read the novel, if you don't have, have critical apparatus to explain it to you, you would never guess that none of this is stuff that Mann actually came up with, and that it is, in fact, from very many different uh, sources all cobbled together. It's, it's mechanical rather than organic in nature. It's, <clears throat> it's an amalgam of two centuries of cultural tradition or uh, an amalgam of what, what two centuries of cultural tradition had made of, uh, of Goethe. And so <clears throat> in my book, I, I postulate that this was on one level a kind of therapeutic exercise uh, for Mann. So he too had reached uh, great author status. And uh, at the time, the Nazis obviously were leaving a jackbooted stamp on, on German literature by tossing all the books that he deemed inappropriate onto bonfires. And Mann rightly worried what su subsequent generations would come to think of his works and how they would be able to access them. And those worries uh, would turn out to be well-founded. You, In your question, you, you uh, alluded briefly to the afterlife of Lotte in Weimar after uh, the Second World War. So what happened after the Second World War is that Mann's fake Goethe quotes about uh, German tendencies, you know, towards berserker excesses and abandoning themselves to fanatical scoundrels, made their way to the German press, and for a while they were uh, they were actually credited uh, uh, to Goethe. They were deemed to be authentic, and when that was actually discovered, it it uh, generated a great deal of embarrassment, not just for the German scholars who had failed to recognize as fake a quotation that had been attributed to the greatest German writer of all time, uh, but also incidentally to the occupational authorities because the British at the Nuremberg trial, the, the British chief prosecutor at the, at the 
uh, Nuremberg trials had actually used that quotation as an indictment um, of the German mind. And now they had to uh, acknowledge the fact that, you know, Goethe actually never said that. And so uh, to me, that's a very illustrative anecdote because it shows that uh, Nazism really did have an effect on, on German culture. After, after 13 years, the German cultural tradition had been uh, deeply warped, had been changed. And so Mann's worries about, you know, how will I live on in, uh, uh, in German culture? How will later generations access my work if, if all they have is, uh, you know, critical works uh, and, and whatever survives of what I've written in, in, in whatever form? How will they be able to piece that together into a, a picture that actually does justice to me? Those questions seem to have been uh, been well founded. So that same year, nineteen thirty nine, um, he published Brother Hitler. How did this engage with the artistic roots of fascism? Yeah, so Brother Hitler um, <clears throat> is an essay, and it was probably the first analysis of fascism that, that Thomas Mann published after his arrival in America. Um, he had previously toured the country with a lecture script that I already mentioned, "The Coming Victory of Democracy." And that's another really important text. But as the title suggests, it's really more about democracy and how to make it emotionally appealing and strong than it is about fascism itself. And Brother Hitler is a very strange text in Mann's overall oeuvre uh, and one that, that, that critics haven't always known what to do with. Um, for one thing, it's uh, the first essay that Mann arguably wrote with an American audience, at least partially in mind. Um, because it was commissioned by an American uh, publication, by Cosmopolitan Magazine, of all things. Um, it ultimately came out in the spring of 1939 in Esquire magazine. So these were decidedly middle-brow venues, and that has also baffled critics, especially uh, uh, German critics who didn't quite know what, what to do with that, uh, being unfamiliar with the reception history of, of Thomas Mann in the 1920s and early 1930s that I've already talked about a little bit. Um, and it's also an essay that actually was published in English translation a few days before the German uh, uh, publication came out in an emigrate journal. So it signals a fundamental shift in the way uh, in which Thomas Mann is being received under conditions of, of Nazi censorship on the continent. But the, the really strange thing, I guess, about Brother Hitler is the actual argument that it advances, namely that, that an, an actual kinship uh, exists between Adolf Hitler and Thomas Mann himself. Mann actually says explicitly, this man is my brother. And, and that's the title under which Esquire magazine also uh, published the article. Now, um, arguments that attacked Hitler as a kind of failed artist and artist manqué, those were very common in the 1930s, just like attempts to, for instance, attack Donald Trump based on his history of bankruptcies are, are, are common now. And it was a very easy way, um, but also a somewhat facile way of engaging with him. I mean, uh, Bertolt Brecht, for instance, has that famous line uh, where he, where he uh, denigrates Hitler as a house painter. But that's not um, what Mann is doing in this essay at all. He is, in fact, taking... Uh, Hitler quite seriously, and he points out the extent to which fascist spectacle, the think of the Nuremberg rallies and stuff like that, to which those were influenced by uh, uh, sort of post-Wagnerian aesthetic developments, and the, the same post-Wagnerian aesthetic developments that had also influenced Mann himself. So he understood that Hitler wasn't a failed artist at all, but somebody who had grasped how to apply techniques that had originally been developed for the theater and, and apply them to a new context, namely, namely mass politics. 
And so one could almost say uh, that Mann in, in this essay articulates the same central insight that Walter Benjamin had already formulated three years earlier in his, in his very well-known essay, The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, which is that, that the fundamental aim of fascism is to aestheticize politics. Now, whereas Benjamin responded to his insight into fascism with a call for communism to politicize art, Mann took a much more introspective turn, and he looked back critically at his own infatuation with Wagner and Nietzsche during the early years of the century, uh, and he asked himself whether he too didn't contribute to a kind of intellectual nihilism that ultimately led to the rise of the Nazis. And so I think that is what makes Brother Hitler a very interesting essay for a present moment uh, in which liberal democracy once again seems to be uh, threatened by the rise of an unfettered and largely fact-resistant populism. Um, there's a big difference between Twitter and fascist mass rallies, of course, but social media disinformation campaigns, just like fascist rallies, rely on the insight that if you stage things properly, you can convince people of almost anything. And that is something uh, that I think Thomas Mann understood as well. Uh, and at the same time, in writing Brother Hitler, Mann made himself a forerunner of, of contemporary intellectuals who also asked themselves, you know, were we perhaps somewhat culpable in, in contemporary developments? Were we too cynical in, in our writings, for example? Right. Uh, and uh, these are ideas that I think are very interesting, but that, that Mann didn't really pursue in his later public pronouncements. So he was uh, the, the Deseret News uh, uh, newspaper from Utah, uh, like I said earlier, famously declared him to be Hitler's most intimate enemy. And the intimate part of that equation sort of dropped out uh, during the course of the early 1940s once Mann fully embraced his role as a figurehead of the anti-fascist cause. Um, but uh, Mann's thoughts about fascism as an essentially theatrical dynamic certainly did influence also uh, his descriptions of Egyptian culture in the Joseph novels, for instance, where the, the rights of the Egyptians are, are contrasted with a, the much more sober monotheism of the Jews. So let's move to his uh, lecturing. Please trace the development of Mann's popular lecturing in the United States. Uh, including his Chautauqua predecessors, his move to that Weimar of the Pacific, um, also known as the Pacific Palisades, a community that I'm familiar with, um, and promotion by Har uh, by Har Harold Pete, etc. Sure. So that's that's probably my favorite topic to talk about from all the book. Um, so as I mentioned already earlier, uh, Mann was marketed in the United States during the 20s as a kind of explainer of the European worldview for middlebrow audiences. And so very early on, actually, already in the late 1920s, there were attempts to bring him over to America uh, as a popular lecturer. And uh, at first, nothing really came of this, in part, I think, because Mann didn't really understand what he was being asked to do. In, in Europe at the time, writers didn't really do that kind of thing. That's, uh, you know, go on, on, on popular lecturing tours. That's something that scientists, retired politicians, and so on did. But uh, authors gave public reading, certainly, and, and Mann was very prolific in, in that sphere, uh, reading from his own novels and so on, but they weren't really asked to comment on the public events of the day as, as Mann was being uh, asked by uh, his American um, inviters. Um, but then once he was driven into exile by the Nazis, these requests from the United States suddenly became a whole lot more attractive because, quite frankly, he needed the revenue stream. Uh, and Mann was being offered a lot of money. For his first lecturing tour in 1938, 
he received $1,000 per appearance, $15,000 in total for 15 lectures, which was roughly the, the annual salary of a college professor at the time, and sort of in the same ballpark uh, as what he earned uh, through, through royalties for all of his books combined. Um, and so it, it was lucrative, uh, uh, and it also was an easy way to win a new audience for himself in America. And so between 1938 and 1943, he toured the country uh, five times, each with a different, each time with a different lecture script in, in, in tow. Uh, he gave uh, a total of 90 lectures in this fashion. He spoke of audiences that averaged somewhere between maybe two and six thousand people, so quite quite big crowds. Overall, uh, uh, several hundred thousand people uh, heard him, and they heard uh, uh, talks with titles like The Coming Victory of Democracy, How to Win the Peace, or The War and the Future. So so very much uh, talks that engaged with um, contemporary reality. And, and these were highly professional events. He had a lecturing agent, uh, Harold Pete, who was a giant in that field. He also represented H.G. Wells and Winston Churchill, amongst many other uh, uh, famous clients. <clears throat> there was a very professional ad campaign with, uh, I think, a beautiful poster that uh, is re, uh, uh, reprinted in my book. And he spoke at prestige venues such as, as Carnegie Hall in New York City or Constitution Hall, um, which belonged to the Daughters of the American Revolution uh, in Washington, D.C., but crucially, he didn't just speak in those large coastal towns, but he also uh, traveled to many smaller communities all over the country, to Tulsa, Topeka, Colorado Springs, Salt Lake City, Birmingham, Mobile, Greensboro, uh, tiny Lewiston up in Maine. He spoke at colleges and universities. He spoke at civic theaters and synagogues. So he didn't just reach uh, the intellectual elites, but also ordinary Americans, the kind of people who maybe purchased his books, The Magic Mountain or Joseph and His Brothers, but who, who then probably struggled to get through all 500 pages uh, uh, of those novels. Those kinds of people uh, uh, came and, and heard him deliver uh, these, these, uh, these talks. And so they were important for the ideas about democracy and about fascism that he presented, but I think they were also important for the form uh, that they took. And this was an age as I've already intimated, of, of mass politics, of mass spectacle, not just in Europe, but also in America, where you had organizations like the German-American Bund or the, the America First Committee, which were holding political gatherings that were fairly similar to the ones staged in Germany and Italy. And the question was, how could democracy possibly compete with, the, with these rousing participatory assemblies, right? And I think Mann's lecture stops gave an answer to this question, an answer that wasn't totally unlike the one that Roosevelt developed by means of his fireside chat radio addresses. The fireside chats worked because they used the radio to promote a notion of intimacy and equality between the leader and his people, which was very suited to democracy and very antithetical to what the Nazis, for instance, were doing or what, what Hitler was doing with the radio. And Mann's lectures worked in the same way. Um, by comparison to, for instance, America First events, they were very small in scale. They were unassuming uh, they allowed people to actually have some sort of meaningful interaction with this famous person, uh, this guy who was billed as, as having all the answers about fascism and the future of democracy. Manin has to be said, absolutely hated this part. He hated the question and answer period when ordinary Joes could just ask him any question, whatever. He wasn't used to this from Germany. His English was terrible. Uh, uh, and he never comments on the questions in his diaries, which I take as a, as a symptom that he thought they were mostly trite. Uh, but I think this format was a hugely important part um, 
of what made these events so successful. And in the book, I try to show how, how Mann's lecture tours tapped into a very long history of public lecturing um, in the United States that Mann actually was wholly ignorant of, but that nevertheless conditioned his success. So there were the Lyceum lecture tours of the mid-19th century. There were the Chautauqua circuits of the early 20th, which were basically mixtures of religious prayer meetings with edifying lectures on all sorts of topics. And historians uh, of that subject have shown um, these itinerant lectures had always been used to create and to shape Republican self-perception in the United States. So they were ways from the very beginning to create what uh, what literary critics would call imagined communities. So in other words, people who listened to a lecture in Columbus, Ohio, um, were very much aware of the fact that the same lecture had been delivered in Philadelphia or in Boston just a few days earlier. And, and uh, through that awareness, they could imagine themselves as taking part in a national discussion, in a discussion that even in the 19th century already uh, frequently included questions such as, what is American democracy? Or what should our foreign policy aims be? So uh, Mann was really reactivating something uh, that that had quite a history in America, and that that enabled him uh, to be as successful as he was. So I think Mann's lecturing activities show us how plugged into American culture he was at the time. Not not plugged in in the sense that he understood American cultures, which he he didn't really, but rather in a way that there was something about him that probably engaged with U.S. public opinion. And so that's why I actually don't like the name Weimar on the Pacific, which is oftentimes uh, applied to the German exile community in the 1940s. To me, that label implies a certain amount of political disorganization and also a dwelling of the past. I mean, those are the two things that, you know, Weimar evokes to me. Uh, and by contrast, I like to draw attention to the fact that Mann lived and worked in the Pacific Palisades, which is a name with a certain kind of bellicose swagger to it that I like, even though it actually has nothing to do uh, with the military. It was dreamt up by a developer who wanted to bestow some of the prestige of the Hudson Palisades on California real estate. Very interesting. Um, so in your in your book, you uh, discuss a little bit about uh, ideas that you refer to as conservative anti-fascism as well as responsible liberalism. How did conservative uh, anti-fascism and responsible liberalism shape man's uh, lecture precepts or not shape his lecture precepts? Sure. Um, so when we think about theories of fascism that were produced during the 1930s and 40s, I think most of us probably immediately think about left-wing theorists like Walter Benjamin, Franz Neumann, Friedrich Pollock, Siegfried Krakauer, and so on, Frankfurt School people and, 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 and their coteries. Um, but there were important conservative anti-fascists as well. And, and Thomas Mann read pretty much all of them and was intimately connected uh, to most of them. Uh, there was Giuseppe Antonio uh, uh, Borghese, for example, uh, who happened to be uh, Mann's son-in-law and was the author of a work called Goliath, The March of Fascism. Um, there was a the cultural philosopher, Erich Kahler, uh, the author of a book called German Character and the History of Europe, who was a close friend of Mann's and his neighbor when, when he still lived in Princeton. Um, uh, there was Hermann Rauschning uh, with The Revolution of Nihilism. Or Peter Fierich with uh, with Metapolitics from the Romantics to Hitler. And in my book, uh, I discuss these figures and I point out that their theories have several common characteristics that can also be found in Mann's work. Uh, the first of those is <clears throat> that unlike most left wing critics, they approached the rise of Nazism as a topic to be considered 
from the vantage point of cultural history rather than from uh, political or economic theory. Uh, and they also like to think on a grand scale, reaching back to the Middle Ages or in some cases even to the Roman period to explain contemporary predicaments. And this was immensely useful to Mann, since on the one hand, you know, he didn't know very much about economics, but he was very much at ease talking about literature and music. Uh, and, and the basis of his fame in America was a cultural one as well. And so the, uh, the proximity of Mann's thoughts to all these conservative figures doesn't necessarily mean that he himself was a conservative, however. Um, that's the way in which he is frequently received in the United States nowadays. But his actual political convictions beyond the fact that he was very much in favor of liberal democracy and very much opposed to, to fascism are quite difficult uh, to untangle. Um, American liberalism had a very strong uh, pull on him as well. Uh, and in my book, I focus on, on a movement that at the time was sometimes called responsible liberalism. Uh, and that was exemplified by people like Archibald McLeish, whom we've already mentioned, or Louis Mumford or Reinhold Niebuhr. And um, these so-called responsible liberals um, advocated for a strongly interventionist foreign policy that put them into opposition with the so-called prag pragmatic liberalism that, uh, of people gathered around John Dewey, who was an anti-interventionist. And um, their militant stance on foreign policy also, that was something that, that, that aligned uh, with, with Mann's own. Um, <clears throat> But another thing that, that Mann and the, um, and the responsible liberals had in common uh, is that, that they took a rather idealistic approach to the question of democracy. That is, they thought of democracy as a calling, a social code, something almost spiritual, not just a, an operating procedure uh, for society. And they, and they thought that contemporary American intellectuals had neglected to sufficiently advocate for this sort of democratic creed. And this, too, aligned very well with Mann's own beliefs. I've already mentioned that he wasn't a very practical kind of person. He didn't really think about day-to-day -day realities of, uh, uh, of politics. He had very idealistic notions about how to defend uh, uh, democracy. He believed that the main task of the intellectual was to make sure that it didn't die off, that it was cared for, that it was maintained, that it had, had a spiritual uh, resonance in people. And so these conservative and, and liberal strains, uh, in fact, are oftentimes uh, difficult uh, uh, to disentangle from one another. So there's the example of the 1940 City of Man, uh, City of Man, sorry, the City of Man conference, um, which was a, a gathering of intellectuals from all across the political spectrum that, that assembled in Atlantic City in May 1940, just as the British were evacuating their troops from Dunkirk. And so this was sort of the darkest hour for Europe. And at that time, uh, the intellectuals that gathered there, in, including Mann himself, who was one of the sponsors of the conference, they turned their thoughts towards the future and, and towards what a post-war order might look like. And the document that they produced makes for a very interesting reading, even though it remained utterly without consequence. Mann actually gave a copy to FDR when he, when he visited the White House, but it's doubtful the president ever even looked at it. But what the, what the declaration shows is that at a time when fascism seemed on an unstoppable march through Europe, uh, progressive and, and, and conservative thinkers were united on the one hand in this kind of soul-searching endeavor, uh, you know, uh, have we somehow neglected democracy? And on the other hand, they were willing to, uh, to consider grand gestures to breathe new spiritual and intellectual vibrancy into the fight with fascism. And I think that makes it a really interesting document to look at in our present era. What transnational and transmedial processes transformed uh, Mann's subsequent German service BBC broadcasts into 
disembodied and haunted messages of German cultural tradition. Yeah, so now the topic of our conversation uh, is shifting to a different sphere of Thomas Mann's activities during the 1940s. Um, his lecture tours, his appearances at the Library of Congress, his essays such as Brother Hitler, those were aimed primarily at an American audience. They, they sought to offer an analysis of fascism and to simultaneously explain why the struggle for democracy was actually worth fighting for. But at the same time, um, Mann never really lost sight of his German audience. He continued to work in German, uh, and the ideal reader that he had in mind as he composed his novels was always German. But because of the extremely efficient censorship me uh, measures the Nazis put into place, those works had a hard time reaching actual readers uh, in the Reich. And so during the 1940s, they were far more consumed in translation uh, uh, than they were in the original German language, which is something that, that interests me greatly. But radio waves, on the other hand, those were far more difficult for the Nazis to censor, though they, they certainly did try. And so the BBC in particular uh, ran a much-studied propaganda operation during the wartime years, and that included uh, many broadcasts in the German language. And from, from 1940 to 1945, Thomas Mann was one of the broadcasters who lent his voice to the BBC's German service. He recorded a total of 58 uh, propaganda broadcasts that are collectively known in the English-speaking world by the series title Listen Germany. And uh, these broadcasts are interesting in part, I think, because they're fairly different from most of the other broadcasts of the German services. And it's important to note here that the BBC exerted almost no editorial oversight. Mann was free to talk about whatever he wanted. <clears throat> and so he did what he always did, which is talk uh, in a fairly abstract register. But in his best moments, um, he used these radio addresses to reflect on the nature of German guilt in the Nazi crimes and, and to warn his countrymen that the American punishment would be severe uh, and would be utterly deserved. And he, he didn't even back away from this assessment after Allied bombers laid waste to his hometown of, of Lübeck. So they're, you know, they're quite interesting uh, uh, rhetorical documents for the positions that they take. But what I'm also interested in in my book is the way in which um, very specific rhetorical strategies that, that Mann developed for his radio addresses and medial contingencies of, of getting his voice into occupied Europe, how those combined uh, to redefine the social position of the author. So what do I mean by that? Um, it's important to remember that Mann did not sit, unlike most of the other broadcasters that the BBC employed, uh, Mann did not sit in a recording studio in London. He instead recorded at the NBC studios in Hollywood. His voice uh, was recorded on a phonograph record. It was then flown to New York City. Uh, and uh, the BBC at, at one point considered actually using uh, Royal Air Force bombers to transport these phonographic records to London so that they could play them there. But that plan was considered to be or was deemed to be impractical. And so instead, uh, the records were played uh, uh, in front of a microphone and the recording was sent via, via transatlantic telephone line uh, to London and was re-recorded there, was edited, recorded one more time, and then broadcast over the radio. So by the time that his voice actually makes its way to occupied Europe, there's been a great loss of signal quality. Uh, and his voice has, so to speak, become very ethereal. It's more located in the radio waves than in a concretely locatable 
uh, physical space. And whether he did so consciously or not, Mann cultivated a specific form of, of, of rhetoric that seemed to correspond to this ethereal nature. He was very fond of biblical expressions, such as, uh, but I say unto you, or have no fear. Uh, and he frequently uh, adopted this, this, this prophetic and even messianic attitude uh, in, in, in which he promised deliverance from the evils of Nazism uh, uh, in his lectures. And there's admittedly a certain amount of, of pretension uh, to all of this, but it also makes for an interesting fit of form and message in my mind, because after all, Mann was no longer addressing his countrymen as a fellow German in the conventional sense of that term. He stood completely apart from their collective experience, but he wasn't really addressing them as an American either. I mean, the whole point of the propaganda broadcasts would have been lost if the Germans had perceived him as uh, you know, an enemy combatant. So what exactly was he? From where did he derive this authority uh, uh, since his works no longer circulated in his home country, uh, he was condemned by the official literary institutions of his state. And Mann's diction and the way in which his message were mediated by the radio, uh, those came together to suggest that his authority came from, from someplace higher than the national community. So let's move to the end of the war and uh, his 1945 Germany and the Germans. At what point did Mann begin to identify as a representative of quote-unquote, cosmopolitan Germanness, rather than solely German culture? Yeah, so that's, that's a key question uh, for the project as a whole. And um, the first thing to understand is that, that Mann had always, even during the, the early nationalist days of the Reflections of a Non-Political Man, with which we began the interview, uh, he had always had a fairly non-traditional understanding of what German culture actually was. And without going into too many of the details, he believed that the essence of German culture was essentially musical in nature. And that's an idea that we find in a lot of other 19th century German thinkers, although it's, it's perhaps a strange thought for a, a literary writer to have. Um, and music, of course, is capable of, of transcending national and linguistic boundaries like no other art form is. So in that sense, uh, from Mann, German culture had always been cosmopolitan, had always been Weltdeutsch, which is the, the, the term that I translate as cosmopolitan Germanness. Um, and, and that's a term that Mann uh, came up with towards the end of the Second World War. But this, this idea of, uh, of a cosmopolitan aspect to German culture, that you could be a part of German culture and identify with it, even if you weren't in Germany or didn't even speak the German language, that is something that we find already at a, uh, at a much earlier point of his, on his, of his life. But he certainly doubled down on this idea during the 1930s and, and 40s. Um, I already talked about how, uh, as he positioned himself in opposition to the Nazis, he began to claim a spiritual affinity between the, the true Germany, the Germany of which Nazism was an essential perversion, and, and Judaism, because Judaism, to his mind, too, was a cosmopolitan religion. And he now argued that German culture would never have reached the heights that it actually did if there hadn't been a constant influx of Jewish talent to German literature, art, and, and music. And around the same time, of course, Mann's own position as a writer in the world began to change. And I think this is, this is absolutely crucial. Uh, uh, and it, it, it brings us back to the questions of habitus uh, and, and promotion with which we uh, began the interview as well. So his former audience in Germany was closed off because of censorship. And so he discovered a new audience uh, for himself in America. And along with this new audience uh, came new sources of institutional affirmation. 
through Princeton, through the Library of Congress, through American critics like Hermann Weigand at, at Yale University or Howard Nemeroff. And uh, uh, Mann learned, in other words, that, that German culture wasn't just the exclusive property of the German people, <clears throat> but it was something that other people took an interest in, in as well and that they helped maintain. So if the Nazis and the German-speaking people who, who cheered them on turned their back on him, that didn't necessarily mean that he was, by definition, banished from German culture as such. There were other ways of holding up, uh, of holding up that flame, and people in, in America were doing so. And so to turn now to, uh, to Germany and the Germans, which I already identified earlier as, as what I think of as really the most, most significant essay that he wrote uh, in his life. Um, so it was a lecture that he gave, uh, it was originally a lecture that he gave at the Library of Congress in 1945. And it was then disseminated, disseminated in both Germany and, and the United States through various print media. And it's certainly a text that argues for a cosmopolitan understanding of Germanness, of, of German identity along the lines that I've just uh, articulated. But it's much more than that. Um, uh, it's a real tour de force of an essay. It's, it's, it's importantly also about German guilt and complicity in the crimes of the Nazis. Uh, Mann has often been faulted for never referencing the Holocaust in his most famous novel from that, that period, Dr. Faustus. But if you look at his non-fictional stuff, uh, he, he really finds pretty strong words there. Um, and Mann's most courageous insight to my mind is that he vigorously denied the idea that, that Nazism could somehow be uh, excised, separated from German culture as such. And, and this is a big difference between him and most left-wing thinkers of the time, for instance, Bertolt Brecht. Um, Marxists like Brecht tended to believe that fascism was essentially a capitalist phenomenon, that ordinary Germans had been manipulated by, by financiers and industrialists. And Mann, on the other hand, was firm in the conviction that that there aren't, as he put it in uh, in uh, Germany and the and, and the Germans essay, that there aren't two Germanies, but rather that, and this is a quote, "Wicked Germany is is merely good Germany gone astray, good Germany in misfortune and guilt and in ruin." So, in other words, he believed that the roots of Nazism, of the evil Germany, were really buried very deeply inside of German culture. And and in his lecture, he in fact travels all the way back to the time of Martin Luther to excavate uh, uh, those roots. And nowadays, this notion that, that Mann advocates for there, this notion that German culture is, is somehow different from the culture of the rest of Europe, uh, which is called the, the Sonderweg hypothesis, uh, is deeply unpopular. Uh, and it is, in fact, true that, that Mann's argumentation is at times a little far-fetched. But the moral courage uh, of his claims to me is nevertheless clear. This is a time when most of his countrymen were busy shifting the blame as far away from themselves as possible. And Mann was essentially saying all of us Germans uh, have something of, of this evil inside of us. All of us need to search within us and, and need to reflect. It doesn't even matter uh, what you individually did. This is not a question of your individual crimes during the time um of the Nazi regime, though, though Mann was certainly level-headed about the fact that the Holocaust was not just committed by a small clique of SS officers, but that it required broader cooperation. But Mann thought that even if you were anti-fascist, as he himself was, you needed to reckon with the fact that uh, that if you identified with German culture, uh, you also in, in some way identified with the dark currents that had made Nazism possible. So, uh, Mann definitely believed in what we now call a collective schuld, a, a collective guilt, 
uh, and he called on his countrymen very eloquently to do penance, uh, a task from which he did not exclude himself. He did have dim views about collective punishment, however, as it was being advocated at the time by people like Lord Vansittart or, or, or Henry Morgenthau. Uh, he believed that the Allied powers should not punish uh, the Allies, but should instead educate the Germans, that they should help create a new state that would bring out the very best of German culture, that would that would lead Germany back into uh, the community of nations that would that would strengthen this this Weltdeutsch, this cosmopolitan German element. And that, of course, is fortunately what, what ultimately happened. So let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, Mann at the early, early on the eve of the uh, Cold War. How did the typological and analytical layers of his uh, 1948 uh, Dr. Faustus, which you uh, have already alluded to, reveal his struggles over the contours of a global republic of letters? And if possible, can you address that ideology of modernity during the cultural Cold War? Yeah, so Dr. Faustus uh, is uh, a text that Mann finished in 1947. It was published in English translation in 1948, so right at the beginning of the Cold War. And it's unquestionably the most sophisticated fictional work that he wrote during the period of his American exile. And it's along with The Magic Mountain, it's it's the novel that is, has endured the most of all of his uh, texts. And it's basically a retelling of the Faust myth uh, through the life story of a composer of modern music, Adrian Leverkuhn. Uh, who combines in his biography and in his thought elements that Mann drew from Nietzsche, from Arnold Schoenberg, from Theodor Adorno, and, and other sources. And it's also Mann's most explicitly modernist work, uh, both in terms of its uh, uh, formal composition and in its artistic intentions. And basically, <clears throat> what I mean by that is that in the years leading up to the composition of Dr. Faustus, um, Mann had started engaging, though only at second remove, with the works of James Joyce. So he didn't actually read Joyce himself, but he read works about James Joyce. Uh, and he was very afraid. Uh, he, he instantly recognized, even at second remove, what a formidable author uh, Joyce was and how he was reshaping modern literature. And he began to fear, I mean, he was a pretty old man at that point, uh, he began to fear that history would not judge his own oeuvre very kindly in the face of such self-evident formal experimentation. And uh, so he tried his hand at a more experimental style than he had uh, uh, sometimes uh, engaged in in the past. And he conceived of Dr. Faustus as a, as a multiply coded work. That is the story of Adrian Leverkuhn. It's not only a life story, but it's also a, an allegory on multiple uh, different levels. It's a narrative about the development of modern music and of aesthetics during the early 20th century. It's also an allegory for the intellectual roots of fascism during the same time period. And it's a story about the development of German culture from the early modern period uh, uh, to the present. So there are uh, passages of the novel that are actually written in, in, in sort of early modern idiom um, uh, as, as we, we sink into deep history, so to speak. And the American uh, uh, critic and, and sort of pioneering theorist of modernism, Clement Greenberg, uh, in an unpublished manuscript that I, I found amongst his papers in California, I think he was the first person uh, to describe this this quote unquote typological structure of Dr. Faustus, and and connected to the modernist movement more generally. And Greenberg had some doubts about whether Mann had ultimately been successful in his intentions, but that's not really the question that interests me. I'm much more concerned with the pragmatic uses to which. Uh, the novel was put in the post-war era. That is, I'm, I'm interested in the connection between modernist form and, and ideology. 
And so you have to understand, <clears throat> first of all, that with the end of the Second World War, Thomas Mann's career was at kind of an impasse. Uh, for the past few years, he had built himself up as Hitler's most intimate enemy. But now Hitler was gone. Mann himself was an old man. U.S. attention rapidly shifted away from Germany and towards the Soviet Union. So was he still relevant, even beyond the formal question? Did he, did he still matter? And most prior critics uh, have pointed out that uh, attention does indeed seem to have waned to quite a large degree. Uh, Dr. Faustus and the works that came after, it didn't sell nearly as well. Well, actually, Dr. Faustus did sell well, but it wasn't, wasn't well critically received. And then the, the stuff that came after was basically a failure, both critically and commercially. Uh, and, and they also highlight, uh, other critics have highlighted, uh, that with the advent, with the advent of McCarthyism, um, in, in the United States, uh, Mann's, uh, career very quickly went down the drain. Um, he had been an early and outspoken enemy of the Nazis. And in the America of the time, that, that turned you into what was known as a premature anti-fascist. That is, as a, a suspected communist. And uh, Mann really lost his faith in the United States. He lost his faith in United States democracy, which he had so vigorously defended just a few years earlier. And eventually he left for good uh, and settled in Switzerland in, in 1952, three years before his death. So that's, that's a very sad story. Uh, but there's a different component to it that I pursue in the book. Uh, and I, I try to show that there were rivaling forces in the U.S. government who actually did think that Mann uh, and, and Mann's formal experimentation would make a powerful ally in the new fight against global communism. So this is where, where modernism and ideology meet uh, in, my, in my work. And the specimen case that they examine is, is Melvin J. Lasky, who ran the German language cultural journal Der Monat uh, out of a, publish, a small publishing house in West Berlin in West Berlin, sorry. Uh, and, and that was a, um, a journal that was actually secretly, as, as was later revealed, was secretly funded by CIA money. Um, and Lasky uh, was very interested in, in, in Dr. Faustus and in Thomas Mann more generally. Um, on the one hand, because it's precisely because it is a novel that exalts in modernist experimentation, but also because it talks explicitly about the invention of 12-tone music as a subject matter. And, and Lasky thought, uh, that he could use this for propaganda purposes it's because Dr. Faustus seemed to prove to him or seemed to illustrate um, that great art will flourish only in the absence of government intervention and only if art takes an abstract subject matter, if it is left to its own devices, if it can be about formal questions like like 12-tone music is. And that, of course, was the very opposite uh, uh, of what the communist position was uh, at the time. And it's something that the U.S. government uh, was very, uh, a conception of the U.S. government was very involved in promoting at the time, if you think of Jackson Pollock in the in the realm of painting, for instance. So Lasky gave a lot of room to Mann in the early issues of Der Monat, and he courted him personally as well, though Mann took a rather dim view of him. He called him a a narrow-minded fellow who lives and thinks in his American propaganda bubble and mistakes himself for Hamlet. Uh, pretty cruel words. But by contrast, Lasky's great antagonist in the Eastern Bloc was Georg Lukács, uh, who was drawn to Dr. Faustus precisely because he saw it as an allegory about the fallen condition of art in the modern capitalist world. For him, the whole book was a tragedy about the social alienation of the artist who was so separated from the productive forces of society that he engages in these empty formalist games like 12-tone music. So you had you had two uh, different readings of the same novel that were carried out with radically dissimilar ideological ends. And ultimately, I think both of these strategies 
proved futile, in part because Mann was simply not a person who was intellectually or constitutionally suited to put himself in the service of somebody else's agenda. And uh, he always thought in abstractions, not in concrete realities, which made him a very slippery tool for uh, cold warriors to use. And as one example of this, um, we might uh, consider his actions during the celebrations of, of, of Goethe's 200th birth, which is when Mann decided uh, that he would return uh, to Germany for the first time since he had left in 1933. Uh, and uh, the, the cover illustration of my book actually shows him uh, during that return in Frankfurt in front of, sort of a bombed out cityscape surrounded by cheering crowds. But Mann crucially decided not just to return to Frankfurt, which was in the western half of the country, but also to the to the great other Goethe city, to Weimar, which was which was in the east. And this absolutely enraged the American press and and American government officials because they rightly thought uh, that the Soviets would try to exploit this visit to Weimar for propaganda purposes. But Mann didn't really concern himself with such deliberations. For him, um, German culture could simply not be split into two parts, and that's what he wanted to demonstrate to the world. And it was as simple as that. So let's uh, conclude with the um, uh, Mon legacy. So uh, during the seventies and eighties, how and why did Mon's posthumous disclosure of homosexuality shift critical assessments of his work to private aims? And if you could touch on a little bit um, how his uh, exile foreshadowed contemporary developments of world literature. Yeah. <clears throat> so. Um... So for me, as for just about anybody else who works on Thomas Mann, one of the most important sources are his diaries. Uh, and those fortunately cover the entire period of his American exile. He destroyed most of the volumes from his, from his younger years, uh, but we have the volumes for the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And so when he died in, in 1955, he stipulated in his will that those diaries had to remain under lock and seal for 20 years. And when they were opened uh, with, uh, in, in 1975, uh, they were received with, with great uh, fanfare. And uh, the resulting revelations that they contained had had a, had a profound effect on Mann's reception because they shifted attention away from the public persona that he had built up for himself in America. Uh, and uh, they shifted attention towards his personal successes and his anguishes, which is a little bit incidentally like what I think we currently uh, are seeing happening with the archive of T.S. Eliot's love letters, uh, which were opened up to the public on January 1st of this year and, and uh, which, which seem to uh, uh, contain quite some, you know, uh, some, some dynamite material. And so, as you mentioned, the, the, the biggest revelation to emerge from the diaries uh, was that Mann was gay and that had a great impact on uh, on Mann's reception. I mean, we had just gone through the sexual liberation movement, uh, and and uh, and so those 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 uh, uh, revelations fell on on very fertile uh, critical ground, <clears throat> for better or worse. Uh, Alan Bloom in the closing of the American Mind, which came out in 1987, for instance, uh, uh, is quite disapproving of Mann. His argument basically is uh, that, that Mann used his fiction as a projection surface for his sexual fantasies as a, as a kind of escape from reality, and that he persuaded his readers to seek similar escapes from the demands of reality. So that's, that's quite a different interpretation from, uh, of Mann's uh, lasting legacy from the one that I'm arguing for uh, in my book. But ultimately, I, I think the problem goes a little uh, farther than that, uh, which is that I think we find in Thomas Mann criticism, especially in the German-speaking world, 
an overfixation on biographical uh, causation. Thomas Mann lived a life that was tremendously rich in both successes and catastrophes. It's uh, uh, a really interesting life. And in fact, a widely popular miniseries uh, has been made of it. I mean, you had the, the Nobel Prize, receptions in the White House, but you also had lots of personal tragedies, uh, suicides, uh, uh, wartime catastrophes, you know, having to flee first from Germany, then from Europe, and so on and so on. <clears throat> and those, those biographical circumstances have meant that there's a huge market, especially in, in Germany, where Mann uh, remains known and, and, and popular, uh, for, for popular, popularizing accounts uh, of him and of his family. And in fact, there are currently more than 20 German language books about the Manns in print. And even here in America, you, you have your pick of four different uh, biographies that have been published of him, which for a German literary figure is, is quite a lot. So uh, Thomas Mann's war may on the surface of things be just yet one more of those biographical approaches. I mean, I write in chronological sequence. I try to keep the reader informed of Thomas Mann's most important activities because I want to reach an audience that is maybe not super uh, uh, knowledgeable about him. But the reality is, uh, as I hope I've been able to show in this interview, that I'm, I'm much less interested in, in Thomas Mann, the living, breathing person, than I am in what in the book I always call Thomas Mann in quotation marks. That is, the sort of almost mythical public intellectual that, that Americans revered in the late 1930s and early 1940s. The author uh, that, that existed primarily as a name on, on, uh, on books, on, on lecturing announcements, uh, in, in uh, discussions by other intellectuals and so on. I'm interested in how an author becomes a brand, how he, how he comes to command respect uh, uh, for achievements that have very little to do with actual literature. And I think that kind of interest and Mann's sort of seminal role in those in in, in developing uh, strategies in that regard um, is what also makes Thomas Mann such a valuable case studies for case study for discussions of contemporary literature. He was one of the world's uh, first producers of what the literary critic Rebecca Walkowitz has called translated fiction. That is, Mann knew that because of the censorship of the Nazis, his work would primarily be consumed in translation, and he had to actively think about how he could steer his reception in a country whose language he barely spoke. And this is a very familiar condition for 21st century authors who hail from outside the Anglophone world, but who nevertheless want to make it big in global publishing. And Mann's success, I think, was also very crucially tied just as much to who he was as it was tied to what he wrote. So in the 1920s, he was received as a quintessential European in the United States. After the Nazis came to power, his Germanness moved to, to the foreground. And um, the Americans believed that he had something valuable to tell them about fascism, not just because he was a powerful writer, but also simply because of who he was. He was from Nazi Germany. He had personally seen what had happened uh, uh, over there. He was sort of an embodiment of of, of the German culture that Mann claimed still existed and that it was worth learning about and ultimately also fighting for. Uh, so calls for, for military intervention against the Third Reich carried a lot more weight when they were articulated for him simply because he was German rather than an American with an interest in, in Germany who was speaking uh, to fellow Americans on that subject. Um, and that too, I think, is a common feature of 21st century global publishing. 
you might think here of, of Khalid Hosseini's novel, The Kite Runner, which was uh, published shortly after the invasion of Afghanistan. Or you might think of the Nobel Prize winner Orhan Pamuk, who is hailed in the West as an explicator of political Islam and is simultaneously derided in his own country uh, as a puppet for foreign interests, much as much as Mann was derided by the Nazis. So if there's one thing that I hope people will take away from my book, it's that the story of an author's public persona can be just as interesting as the story of their actual life. For after all, uh, authors live uh, and, and, and enter immortality through their works and, and the face that they put onto the world for me is an important part of that. It is something that, that deeply informs the way the works are received. It's not, it's not any less fictional than the words that they put down on the page. So I have a final question. What's going on with you next? Is there any uh, projects that you're currently working on? Well, so at the present moment, uh, I'm sort of still uh, dealing with uh, uh, side projects that have, have developed as a result of working on this book for such a long time. So I have more that I want to say about <clears throat> Thomas Mann and American political culture uh, in the 1930s. I think that's a, that's a really interesting uh, subject uh, and, and a way of, of bringing together German studies with American studies, uh, which are fields that I think uh, have much to learn from one another. Um, I'm also uh, interested in writing more on other uh, German authors who came over to the United States during that time period and uh, learning more about the various mediators that, uh, that uh, introduced them to an American public. Other publishing houses, uh, uh, I mean, book club, book club activities is something I talk about the, in the book as well. Uh, translators are hugely interesting to me. I basically want to find out uh, how German culture was marketed in the U.S., what kind of lasting impact it had as well. I mean, f- for me as a German living in the United States, that's a, that's a hugely personally interesting uh, uh, topic as well. I mean, I, I, as a professor of German literature, I, I get paid to be a mediator for German culture in the United States as well. So that, that's an interesting uh, topic. And then ultimately for my next book, uh, I want to actually travel into the 21st century uh, and uh, look at European populist movements and uh, their cultural dimensions. I want to look at literature that is produced by intellectuals who sympathize with uh, ascending uh, right-wing populist movements in uh, uh, all across Europe, not just in Germany, although there are certainly interesting uh, German examples. And they also want to look at uh, uh, literature that is produced in conscious opposition to those kind of tendencies. And I want to inquire, is even in the 21st century, in a, in a, in a time that's very different from the, from the mid-20th century, uh, is, is literature actually still a tool that can be used for the defense of, of democracy or conversely for attacks on democracy? Or is this all just sort of stuff of yesteryear? So we hope you remember the New Books Network for those uh, projects. Um, so the uh, book is Thomas uh, Mann's War uh, by Professor Bose. Um, Literature, Politics, and the World Republic of Letters, published earlier this year by Cornell, or actually last year, by Cornell University Press. 
on behalf of uh, Professor Bose, who I thank for being on the show today, um, this is Ryan Tripp for the New Books in History, a channel on New Books Network. Please tune in next time.